Jesus of Nazareth is history's most celebrated figure. There have been more books written about him, more pieces of artwork, more compositions of music which center upon Jesus. More words have been said about Jesus Christ than any other person in the history of the world. He was born in obscurity. He was raised in virtual poverty. Jesus was one who ministered indiscriminately. He didn't pick and choose those to whom he served and ministered. Jesus is the greatest, isn't he? And he was unusual in every phase of his life, but his death was incredibly different. We know from this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 2, look at verse 23, how Peter is preaching on Pentecost about the person of Jesus. He says, This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Interesting co-conspirators with regard to the death of Jesus. It's obvious that this was God's plan. Without God's impetus, Jesus would not have died for you and me. Jesus was voluntary in his going to the cross. No one made him go. He did it of his own free will in obedience to the Father. But also, there is this group of people to whom this sermon was first delivered, and the way in which they are dressed indicates that they were the ones who nailed Jesus to a cross through the hands of godless men. He was talking about people who were descendants of Abraham, people who were related to Jesus. They were the ones who really nailed Him to the cross through the hands of godless men. A reference, undoubtedly, to the Roman authorities, beginning with Pilate and that detachment of Roman soldiers who took Christ to the place of crucifixion and executed Him by nailing Him to the cross. In the next verse, the Bible says, God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Him to be held in His power. The phrase, the agony of death, indicates that the death of Jesus was not in any way anesthetized. There was no pain medicine which was administered to Jesus in order to dull the excruciating pain of dying on the cross. The Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they certainly had perfected it by this time, almost 200 years after they were introduced to crucifixion by the Phoenicians in the Punic Wars. We see Jesus, among many others, many people had died of crucifixion prior to Christ in Israel. In fact, in his own region, just about 30 years before this, 2,000 rebels, warriors, who were rebelling against the Roman Empire were crucified under the regime of a man by the name of Varus, the general in charge of that area, to keep the peace for Rome. This death of Jesus was a scandalous death. It was scandalous to all the people in the region and all the people 
in the Western world. The reason I say that, you may remember when Jesus was crucified, Pilate ordered that his name be placed above his head on the cross. And the name was simple, the King of the Jews. And it was written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew or Aramaic. It was written in Latin and also in Greek. Paul writes about the foolishness of the cross to the Greek. The Greeks were the intellectual elites of Jesus' day. They saw wisdom as that which was revealed in beauty and in truth, in goodness, those sorts of abstract concepts. And when the Bible would indicate, and when the biblical writers after the gospel writers would indicate that Jesus is the personification of wisdom, they would scoff and mock at that. In fact, one of their writers, whose name was Celsus, early in the second century A.D., made this statement about the believers in Christ. He said, they worship the sophist who has been crucified. They worship this one who is wise, who was crucified. And then the Romans found it scandalous too. The reason they found it scandalous is reflected in the statement that Cicero, the great orator and statesman of Rome, spoke of this way of execution. He made the statement that it's only for those from the lowest classes. No Roman citizen could be crucified. It was really reserved for slaves or prisoners of war. And Cicero said that it should never be mentioned in conversation between Roman citizens. It was scandalous, this kind of death, not only to the Greeks, but also to the Romans, but to the Jews, too. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is not only foolishness to the Greeks, but it's also a stumbling block to the Jews. And the reason is quite clear. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the law of Moses, there is a statement which says this, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus, in the minds of the Jews, was cursed, and you can see why they concluded that, because he was hanged on a tree. And in their minds, that eliminated the possibility of his being the Messiah. There's no way this one could be the Son of God if he were indeed, as he was, crucified, hanged, as it were, on a tree. The cross of Jesus was scandalous. It was also shameful. It was a shameful kind of death. After Jesus had been beaten severely, taken to the place of crucifixion, bloody and battered. We know that he was nailed to what was called the patibulum. It would be the cross piece of the cross, the horizontal piece. The upright piece would be in the ground. There would be a slot in the top of the upright piece. Once the victim was nailed to the cross, hands and feet, that one would be raised and there was a slot. And then the cross piece would be placed down into the slot reserved for that cross piece. Jesus was crucified without clothes. Can you imagine the shamefulness of that? Our Lord, the God-man, 
who consented voluntarily to play this all-important role for you and for me died on that cross, knowing full well that Jews there were loving it, those who had conspired for his death. And please don't mishear me. I'm not talking about everyone who is a descendant of Abraham in that time nor this time. But the people who really conspired to have him placed on the cross are described by the Gospel of John as the Jews. And it's a reference to the ruling people. There were about 70 people along with the chief priests who ruled the internal affairs of Israel, even though Rome was in charge. And those people probably enjoyed immensely watching Jesus squirm on the cross because they knew their vaunted and cherished traditions would still hold and they would retain their power. It was a shameful death for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a piece of graffiti from the 2nd century A.D. found in the catacombs in Rome, and it's a depiction of a man on a cross with the head of a donkey. And there is an inscription underneath it. It simply says, Alexamenos worships his God. They saw Jesus as a donkey. And they, meaning the people who opposed Christ among the people of the day, it was a shameful death that Jesus died. It was a solitary death. Among the things which he says on the cross is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he cried out in what someone called dereliction. He had his full faculties when he said that. All his men had forsaken him. There were a few brave women who had remained. And John, the, the apostle whom he loved, returned to the cross to stand by Mary, the mother of Jesus. He had enough courage to come back to be with Christ. But they all deserted. And then on top of that, Jesus cries out, Why, Father, have you deserted me? Why have you turned your back upon me? The answer is very obvious. The Scriptures tell us that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, He was being cursed by God. He was being cursed by God because sin exacts a wage, and the wage of sin is death. Not simply physical death, but spiritual death. And Jesus died physically for sure. It was a hideous, horrible kind of death. But He died spiritually in a sense too. Because the Father poured all of the wrath which He had stored up from Adam up until that point and in anticipation of all the sin that I have committed and you have committed all the way to the end of time. It was all stored up and it was heaped on Jesus. And Jesus felt the full weight of the wrath of His Father whom He had only known in a relationship of intimacy. And so, we see Jesus dying alone. It was the most significant death in all of history. The most important life Certainly the most significant death. In the book of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Jesus Christ died for our sins. That makes His death significant to you and to me. He died personally for us when He died upon the cross. He died, as I've mentioned, voluntarily. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. He died as our substitute in Mark 10, 45. He says about himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Interestingly, the word that's translated for in English when he's talking about those for whom he died, for many, it's one of the few times it's used in relationship to the death of Jesus for us. And it's very instructive. It means in our place. He died in the place of us is what it really means. In other words, I should have been on the cross. I should have been taking the full weight of the penalty for my sin. But Jesus died for Mike Woods. And He died for you. And in so doing, He showed His great love. The Bible says in 1 John 3.16, By this we know what love is, that Jesus laid down His life for us. And then Jesus Himself says, Greater love has no one than this, that He laid down His life for His friends. The distinctively unique word for love in the New Testament is the word which means the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. That's what Jesus did for us. We who are racked with sin, we who are alienated from God by our sin, Jesus who had never known any period of separation, not even an instant, Jesus voluntarily substituted Himself in a loving act that is unparalleled and will never be achieved by any other being in the universe And he died victoriously. We've sung about that this morning. When he died, just before he died, he said, it is finished, which simply means I have paid in full. It was a word of the marketplace, one word, tetelestai. And it meant he had finished the work which the Father had given to him in that moment, the work of redemption. In Galatians chapter 3, the Bible says that he redeemed us by becoming a curse For us, He was cursed because of our sin. Let's go back to chapter 2 of Acts. He would be wrong, and it was thought to be wrong, obviously, by the New Testament church, to talk about the crucifixion without talking about the resurrection. The Bible says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions, and He was raised up for our justification. In other words... If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, we would not have a snowball's chance. We would not have an opportunity to know God. His resurrection vindicated Him. And it was God's way of raising Him up to show who He really was and is. Jesus died for us. And verse 24 of Acts 2 says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And then look at verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So, there are some theories. There were right from the get-go as to why the tomb was empty. 
on what we call Easter Sunday. And it was empty. And so what did the chief priest bribe the soldiers to say if they were asked what happened to the body? And the answer was, tell people the disciples stole the body. Now remember, where were the disciples when Christ was being crucified? They were hiding out, weren't they? They were nowhere to be found. So it's crazy to consider the possibility of the disciples coming and overcoming the soldiers at the tomb, risking their lives to rescue the corpse of Jesus. It was also thought that the Jews, maybe later it was said, the Jews stole his body. Well, that's foolish as well, isn't it? All they would have to do is show the corpse, show the remains of the decaying, embalmed body. Some have said that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. They say that he just really swooned. That's a sweet way of saying it, isn't it? A man who has gone through the cross, the awfulness of the cross, swooned, hardly, and he revived in the tomb somehow or another in the damp coolness of the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, he revived. Well, there are all kinds of suggestions about what happened to the body of Christ, but let's think about the evidences that would hold up one of these or two of these would hold up in a court of law. But let me give you six evidences. The cross itself, we've already talked about this. A man who was a physician, his name was Dr. E.S. Thompson. In his careful examination of all the facts associated with Jesus being beaten to a bloody pulp and then crucified on the cross, he said that his conclusion was that Jesus died of a broken heart, a ruptured heart. He says this is verified by the fact that when the soldier, to be sure that Jesus was dead before his body would be removed from the cross, took a spear and he thrust it in his side. And then out of that hole in his side made by the spear came a mixture of blood and water. When the heart ruptures, all the blood flows into the sac of the heart, the pericardium. And... We know that Jesus was already dead because the blood had already coagulated. The blood had clotted. There had been a separation of what appeared to be water. It was serum that is part of blood and the red part of the blood, and that flowed out. Jesus died. So the evidence that he's dead and that lends itself to the idea that he's been raised again is that Jesus died on that cross. What about the existence of the church? Think about this group here today. Quite a few people here today. Some people here last night also. Why are you here today? You're here, in most cases, because you know the resurrected Christ. He lives in you. This is not some fairy tale that a bunch of guys conspired to create in the first century. It's not that. It's not something theologians have made up. It's the truth. And the church is an expression of that. We're flawed. Our church is flawed. Every church is flawed. But we are people who love Christ. And we've come together to worship Him today. Think about the twelve 
minus Judas, these guys who just flew the coop like a covey of quail when Jesus was arrested in the garden. And what happened to them later? Judas is out of the picture. There were 11 more. All but one died a martyr's death. And they died outside of Jerusalem. James was beheaded in Jerusalem, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. But the other nine died outside, taking the gospel somewhere else. They were proclaiming the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. What about the appearances of Jesus? This is compelling. Go to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians again. Verse 3 again. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what also I received. The word delivered and received were part of a formula that had been used for years among the Hebrew writers when they were passing on a tradition to a future generation or some new teacher. They would say, I deliver this to you and you receive it. And then we see the expression of that in the last part of verse 3 through verse 5. There's a series of four introductions with the same word, and it's translated that. So let's follow carefully. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that, second clause, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Then he goes on to talk about some other people to whom he appeared. Now, follow me carefully. The Apostle Paul was probably converted about... 35 A.D. Let's say Jesus was crucified and was raised again 30 A.D. Five years after Jesus was crucified, Paul was converted. And he goes and he begins to research about the Lord. And this language is strong, strong suggestion. I delivered what I also received that there was a piece of information written down which was handed over to him. This little section is the oldest section in all of the New Testament. And it bears witness to Christ. He only was separated by about five years from the crucifixion. That is strong evidence for the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there are the guards who were charged not to go to sleep. If they were found asleep, they would be executed. If I were on that kind of detail, I would take some no-dos. I don't know about you, right? I'd do whatever I could to stay awake because I don't want to die because I fail in my duty of guarding. That answers its own self. The burial preparation by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they took such great care of the body of Jesus. Don't you know they would have been meticulous in the way that they prepared His body? They sought to adhere to the traditions. They would have cleaned the blood out from under His fingernails and toenails. They would have bathed His body, removing all the vestiges of blood and serum. They would have fixed His hair in preparation 
They were in a hurry because they had to get it done before sundown because it was the beginning of the Sabbath. But they did all that. Don't you know if Jesus had been alive, they would have known it? His body was cold because he was dead. Jesus' body was not stolen from the tomb. The people didn't go to the wrong tomb. Jesus was raised from the dead. Praise the Lord. And then in John chapter 20, we see the story of Peter and John running to the tomb. And when they get there, John arrives first, and then Peter lags behind. And they look into the tomb, and all of a sudden, they see it. They understand what Jesus had said on more than one occasion to them, that he was going to be crucified, and that he was going to be raised from the dead. You know how they knew it? Because when they looked, this is what they saw. They saw what in effect was a chrysalis. It was like a cocoon. Because when Joseph and Nicodemus prepared his body, they took strips of linen, they took lots of aloes and myrrh, which mixed together would form a sticky paste, and they had wrapped his body with these linen strips. And what had happened when he was raised from the dead, that chrysalis was intact, the napkin which they had put over his face was set aside where his head would have been, but he was gone. Now, if somebody tried to rob the grave, they would have taken the whole thing, wouldn't they? Grave robbers wouldn't have left anything. And they could not have unwound all that and then put it back together the way it was put together. These are eyewitnesses. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about there are 500 people who have seen the resurrected Christ and most of them are alive. Go ask them. We've got some eyewitnesses. I wish time would allow us to look at the credibility of the gospel writers themselves. That's another evidence. But we must stop at this point. God raised Jesus from the dead. God robbed the grave. This is good news to you and to me. When Jesus made his first appearance to the apostles in the upper room, you may recall there was one of the apostles, not counting Judas, who missed the occasion. His name is Thomas. Thomas was probably rather melancholy. He was disappointed. He was thinking, how could I have been so foolish to give three years of my life to follow a hoax? He was somewhere licking his wounds. He was not there. Jesus shows up, and then a little bit later, after Jesus has moved on, he shows up at the upper room. And the apostles are so excited. We have seen the Lord. He has been here. And being his usually skeptical self, what he says, I won't believe until I see the scars in his hands and I put my hand in the hole which was made in his abdominal region. I won't believe. Well, eight days passed. Those men were together again with some others, women and others who were close to the Lord. Same place. Jesus shows up. And all of a sudden, things change for Thomas because he sees the 
person of Christ. And he touches. And his body is warm. Jesus is alive. He had a different kind of body. What is called a spiritual body. He's alive. And then Thomas says this. You know what he says. Many of you do. All he said was that it was a mouthful. It was enough to take him from a place of spiritual death to spiritual life. He said, my Lord and my God. They had called him Lord before, but this is the first indication of any description of him by his followers that he's God. He knew that he is God. And this is the message of Easter. And as an aside, let me make a comment. The resurrection gives us the power, once we receive Christ, to live the Christian life. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Jesus lives in us. This is the way we live the life. This is why so many people struggle with the Christian life. I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah, you can't. Nobody can But what is impossible with us is possible with Christ because He lives in us. If we understand that, we yield ourselves to Him. He gives us the power. Paul says this as he introduces his remarks to the Corinthians. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the hardship we faced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. This is the great Apostle Paul. He thinks he's dying because of the pressures which are placed upon him. Do you find yourself there today? Well, this was Apostle Paul. But this is what he concludes by saying. This is great. He says this, But this happened, that I might not rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead. We who know Christ have been called to rely, not just in times of hardship, but all the time on the God who raises the dead. And that person of Christ lives in us. This is the message of Easter. This is the message of hope. And this is the challenge for each of us. Would you bow your head? Have you ever seen your need for Jesus? like Thomas did? Have you ever cried out to the Lord and said to Him, My Lord and my God? If you were to do that today, having never done it before and mean it, it will be a great transition from death to life spiritually and a great transformation begins as He has made you a new person in Himself, and given you eternal life. Would you just take a moment to dare to pray that to Jesus? Knowing that the Bible says if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for your doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
And thank you for continuing to empower us to live as you would have us to live. May we never be the same, Lord, because of our understanding of our relationship to you and your love and grace and power available to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.